Amen. Thank you to the worship team as always and to the Lord who's worthy of worship. Let's uh, pray as we approach God's word together. Lord, we simply come and ask that you would open our eyes to see and our hearts to receive the feast of your word. For your word is truth. We want to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we've all heard that phrase that people often use, you ain't seen nothing yet. You all heard that phrase? Yeah. I remember watching some of my favorite athletes for the first time growing up. I don't know, some of you around my age probably remember watching Magic Johnson for the first time. And you're just wowed and in awe of all the wonderful things he could do on the basketball court. And those that had watched him for a long time, maybe my dad or someone else, stops and says, you think that's cool? You ain't seen nothing yet. Right? I was thinking about the children that go to Disneyland for the first time. And they enter into the gates and they walk through just that opening part there. I was going to say the narthex of Disneyland, probably not what they call it. But you enter into there and the kids are looking around. There are all these colors and there's all this joy and all these people and they're so excited and in awe. And the parent says, kid, you ain't seen nothing yet. Seems to me that that refrain, you ain't seen nothing yet, is a common theme in scripture. Every step of the way, the Lord seated in the heavens, smiling as he reveals bit by bit the mystery. If you remember last week, we were talking about the mystery of God, the plan of God revealed to us, his children. And bit by bit, as he reveals more and more progressively all of this glory of his mystery, he just keeps saying, oh, you think that's cool? You ain't seen nothing yet. Now, I don't know if the Lord would say ain't because it's not proper grammar, but you understand. Now, so far in this series in Ephesians, we've seen a lot. We have to think, if we haven't seen anything yet, I mean, what is there left to see? But, But think about what we've seen thus far in the letter to the Ephesians. We've seen election before the foundation of the earth. We've seen predestination. We've seen adoption to the glory of God's grace. Grace highlighted again and again. We saw last week union with Christ that gives to us redemption and and forgiveness and we get to participate in the one in whom all things will find their meaning. And we're in Him. We've seen the blood of Jesus shed for us. We've seen an outpouring of this lavish grace from our God in ways that we cannot comprehend. The creator of the universe, a couple weeks ago we saw, takes pleasure in saving us rebellious sinners. And I can imagine Paul, as either he was writing or reciting this to his amanuensis who would have been writing, I can see him pause Maybe smile to himself and think, they ain't seen nothing yet. And then he writes some more. What's he writing? This morning we're going to wrap up this last portion of Paul's outburst of praise that starts the book of Ephesians. And we're going to continue to see this great salvation that God has given to us in Christ. And this morning we're going to see four things. 
You can turn the back of your bulletin and there's a brief outline there for you. And the four things will be this. The basis of our salvation. The purpose of our salvation. The proof of our salvation. And the hope of our salvation. Please open with me your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to take a look at verses 11 through 14. Ephesians 1. That's page 976 in the Bibles that are around the sanctuary under the chair in front of you. I urge you to take it, open it up, page 976. Keep it open as we are going to walk through the Scriptures this morning together. And hear now God's Word, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Paul continues to write, In Him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen? May God bless the reading of His holy word. Let's start with the first point. That is, what's the basis of our salvation according to what Paul is saying here? Look at verse 11. Keep your eyes there and and read through that. In some ways, Paul's repeating some of the themes that he's already laid out for us earlier in this benediction, this outburst of praise. In other ways, he's going to carry the thought forward. Again, please notice that just as everything else that Paul's been saying so far in Ephesians, we have all of these things in Christ. If there's nothing else you get from this series, please get this. Everything we have as Christians comes only because of our union with Christ. So what is it that Paul says here that we have in Christ? He's already said so much, but he continues. And here he says, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. In other words, we have received a family possession. The language that Paul uses here has to do with something that has been appointed by lots. It's allotted to us in Christ. That reminds us of, history, of the history of Israel and, and their inheritance. And If you remember, the, the promise that was made to Abraham fulfilled as Joshua brought the people into the promised land and it was divided to them by lots. It was an allotment by God, their inheritance. The same concept is being used here by Paul. We have an inheritance from God. And think about how this relates to the idea that we are adopted by God. And so we get the full rights of children, the full adoptive rights of the inheritance that's ours. We're family. We're in the will, so to speak. We're the recipients of the riches and wealth of our Father in Christ. We are co-heirs with Jesus. This makes us royalty, beloved. That's a crazy thought. 
please stop and think about it. If you think about who you are, if you know yourself, us fallen sinners, broken human beings, rebels against God, not wanting to have anything to do with Him until He broke into our lives, and He has taken us and given us this glorious inheritance. It's another aspect of our salvation. Another angle by which Paul wants us to see the glory of God, and in it he rejoices. But it keeps getting better and better. Don't miss this. Look what he says. The basis of our receiving this inheritance. The why, the the grounds, the reason is what? Is it our goodness? No. Is it our personal faithfulness? Certainly not. Paul lays it out clearly. The basis of our salvation is God's sovereign will you can put that in your notes god's sovereign will do you see that there look at verse 11 take a careful look because i don't think you can miss it look what he says having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will That's Paul putting together every word that he can think of in the Greek language that says to those who are going to be reading this and hearing this letter, this is God doing it and not you. And he lays it out here. Predestined, according to his plan. By the way, notice what he says about his plan. His plan and purpose and all things worked out energized or actualized by him all things and according to what the intention of his own desire god's desire i want to reflect on this for a moment what's paul saying everything that happens all things Worked out by who? Him who works all things. He's talking about God. And how does he work them out? According to his purpose. And what's his purpose based on? His own counsel. His own intention. His own will. Beloved, God is God. He is sovereign over all things. As one author put it, reflecting on this verse, he says, words that emphasize God's meticulous planning and sovereign control pile up one upon another. Paul wants us to see God's intentionality. God meant this. You know one of the worst things you can say to a young child you were an accident, right? You were a mistake. We didn't mean to have you. Beloved, what the Lord is saying to you, O Christian, is that you are no mistake. Your faith is no accident. It wasn't left up to chance. You, are in, you who are inheriting the riches of God are doing so based on the perfect, carefully planned intention of the God of the universe. He wanted to be your father. And so he is. Amen? Yes, you, O Christian, 
who perhaps at times feel alone, confused, wonder if you matter to the rest of the church family or you matter to anyone at all, you matter to God, the sovereign one. The basis of our salvation is God's sovereign desire, his will. And Paul sees that and he understands that and he can't help but rejoice and praise the Lord for it. Because Paul knows if he was left to his own devices, there is no chance that he would turn to the living God. But let's keep going because there's more here. That was the basis of our salvation. Look at point two, the purpose of our salvation. Look at verse 12. Here Paul gives us the so that of what he's just been laying at. So that what? Why do we have this inheritance? Why is grace poured out on us and lavished upon us in this way? Why are we predestined? What are we predestined for that Paul keeps talking about this word? Why has God, by His sovereign will, adopted us and made us His own? Now, Often, beloved, the way we live our Christian lives gives an answer to that question that's not exactly the right answer. We often seem to live in such a way that we, we say that we have this inheritance for ourselves, for our own comfort, for our own enjoyment. And in fact, there is a kernel of truth in that. We are to enjoy God. We are to enjoy the provision He's made, and that's good. But I want you to look at what Paul says in verse 12. What are we predestined for? Why is He giving us this inheritance? What's the purpose of it all? Verse 12 lays it out. We are to exist for the praise of His glory. God's glory. In fact, in the original language, it reads this way. So that we might be for the praise of His glory. And then he goes on to describe those who have firmly hoped in Christ. The purpose of our salvation, beloved, is God's glory. Our being saved, our our actions as those who are saved, is to make His brilliance and His majesty and His glory known. Our existence, that there even are Christians who have turned from darkness to light, rescued and set apart, is to point to the reality that God is God and there is no other. It points to His greatness. It points to His power, His kindness, His mercy, because we left to our own devices would never turn to God. We would never change. We would never be sanctified. In fact, we were enemies of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us after we turned. He didn't wait for us to do the work. He did it all. Some of you guys may be familiar with the language of 2 Corinthians 2.14, which says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Now, I love that image. I love that image of a triumphal procession, but some people think, they they get it wrong, they think that those who are triumphing in that passage are us Christians, but we're not. That's Christ who's triumphing, and 
in the image, we are the vanquished ones. We're the conquered ones. And he is parading us around as the conquering general who's vanquished his foe. We are, we are his trophies. We are God's prize. But trophies of what? Trophies of his power? Yes. But trophies of his grace, his kindness. He conquered us with his love. He vanquished us with his own sacrifice. He won by giving of himself. Now, you may not want to admit this, but how many of you are following our five by five by five? Well, you would want to admit if you are following it, I should say, probably. Yeah, okay. If you are following that, this week we read some of the most exciting stuff. This week we read of Paul's conversion in Acts 9. Can you imagine this man had been killing Christians? He had just been given papers to go and arrest more Christians in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried, and suddenly Christians are hearing that he is now preaching Jesus. (laughs) He's preaching Messiah. The guy who, who hated Jesus is now magnifying Jesus. Listen, everywhere that Paul went after that moment, it wasn't Paul who was seen. It was Jesus. Why? Paul's his trophy. Paul's his prize, a trophy of his grace. When Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, he met Paul as an enemy. He could have conquered Paul by destroying him. Instead, he conquered him by changing him. And that's the same with you and me. Do you believe that? If you're a believer, it's because he conquered you to save you. The purpose of our salvation is God's glory when we live out the christian life that he has worked in us by his spirit we let the world know that the god of the bible is god and they will see that he and his word are real what he says is true but before we move to the next verse i don't want you to miss it look at the verse 12 again because paul speaks not only the purpose of our existence as christians yes to the praise of his glory but also describes christians The ESV translates there, we who were the first to hope in Christ, but others believe that it should say something more like this, we who place our hope firmly in Christ. I think that's better. Regardless, Christians are described here as those who put their hope in Christ. Is that you? They put their hope in Christ fully and completely. They're looking forward to what we talked about last week, that he is going to be the sum of, of all of history underneath him. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul speaks of what changed in the Thessalonian Christians when they first came to believe in the Lord, and Paul describes it this way. He said, they turned to God from idols to serve God, quote, and to wait for his Son from heaven. Are you waiting for the coming of his Son? Is that what gives you hope? Elsewhere, Paul speaks of his own impending death. The reward that, or the award that awaits him. And he adds, quote, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Are you waiting for him to come? Are you looking forward to his appearing? 
Last week we said that all things are going to be summed up in Jesus. This week Paul tells us that Christians are looking forward to that coming day. We live in hope of it and we order our lives around that reality. Or we should. It's part of glorifying God and revealing His power. When we reveal to the world that we really believe there's something more that comes after this life, they know that we believe in a God who is glorious. When we live like this is the end all, they do not take our God's promises seriously because we're not taking them seriously. Do we believe that he will come again and that he's going to bring the fullness of his kingdom? Do we believe that he will reign? Do we believe that we already have victory in him, that our time on this earth is only a sojourn, a pilgrimage? Our permanent home is is in the new heavens and the new earth. And if we believe these things and have hope there instead of on this earth, what does that look like for us in our daily living? Do we really mean it when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? Or do we mean, let my kingdom grow, satisfy my heart's desires, let me live the American dream? In fact, We glorify God by hoping in Him and looking forward to that day. We glorify God by having hope instead of hopelessness, even when things are difficult. Oh, Christian, things should never feel helpless to us in this world. Because if God is for us, what? Who can stand against us? Nobody. We glorify Him by resting in His promises instead of depending on our own abilities. We glorify Him by having a firm conviction, I need Him, and He loves me. Wow. We glorify Him by dying to ourselves, taking up our crosses and following Him because we know through His grace that to save my life is to lose it. To lose my life for Him is to gain it all. The basis of our salvation, God's sovereign will. The purpose of our salvation, God's glory, not ours. But there's more. Look at our third point. The proof of our salvation. Look now at verse 13. Notice first that there's a change to the second person plural, from we to you also. And some think that verse 12 is speaking of Jewish Christians and verse 13 is now turning to Gentile Christians. I don't think that's accurate For a number of reasons, I don't think that's accurate, including the fact that the we has been used by Paul the whole time so far about Christians, believers, all of them. And so to shift without any indication, I don't think fits here. But what Paul, I do believe, is doing by turning now to the you pronoun, he's making it personal. It's a rhetorical tool. Preachers do it all the time. It's a way of narrowing in. It's urging the listener to, to hear that it's not for everybody else. It's for you to go from the theoretical to the concrete. One author said that this is a, quote, a way of speaking directly to them. And so I want you to hear this as though the Lord is speaking directly to you. Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know that this all applies to them personally. He wants to tell them about themselves almost like he knows them better than they know themselves, and I think he does, or at least he knows their history better than they know it. 
It's almost like he's explaining to them their past because like a, like a parent wants to explain to their children their past so they know their identity. I love recounting to my children things from their childhood. When you started reading, you loved animals. When you first learned to run, you wouldn't stop running. Here Paul recounts their stories. Look what he says. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Now what did, what did they hear? This is the word of truth. That is the gospel But Paul intentionally first calls it the word of truth. In fact, in the original language, he uses the article there, the definite article. It says the word of the truth. One New Testament scholar pointed out that the Ephesians lived in a pluralistic society in which they had, quote, nearly 50 gods and goddesses claiming to be true. That's one small city. 50 gods and goddesses. Amazing. Paul wants to encourage them. They've turned to Christ. He says, look, in Christ, you have found now the truth. There's something exclusive going on here. Jesus isn't one among many. The gospel isn't one of a number of ways. It is the way. Not only that, notice what he says. The word of truth that they heard is also the good news of their salvation. Some say it is the good news that produces salvation. I agree. The word worked in them. Just as God promises in the book of Isaiah, the word of God will not return to him void. And it does not. The word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And what a work it does in us. And Paul's saying, look, look, when you heard the word, when you heard the gospel, you believed the word, you believed in him, you trusted in that good news that we can do nothing, that God has done everything, we must trust him and cling to him. You believed it, and when you did, something else happened. Here's your story. You were sealed. You were marked by the Holy Spirit. And beloved, that is true for every single Christian. You are sealed. In that world, a seal would have had a number of meanings. One was ownership. Wherever that seal was, it belonged to the one whose seal it was. Now, some of you who have borrowed books from me, you know that in my books I put a seal (laughs) It says, from the library of J.V. Matosian. Those are mine. My books. And I stamp them because I want you to know they're mine. And if you borrow them, and one day you notice in the cover it says, they're not yours. Please bring them back. Okay, but I digress. Um, A stamp was used to mark something owned by one, but it was also marked as authentic. When the stamp was there from the king, it meant that's, that's real, that's royal, it's true. Kind of like a, a watermark in a $100 bill, or actually any bill, I suppose. It says this is real. The, the, the United States government stands behind these pieces of paper, because nothing else stands behind those pieces of paper. But anyway, no econ- economy lesson. Anyway, here's what Paul is saying to the Ephesian Christians. The Holy Spirit present in your life is proof that you belong to God. His presence in your life is evidence of your salvation that God has wrought. Where the Spirit is, there is life. And beloved, what He marks, 
he will not lose. He won't. How do you know that you have the Spirit? If there is faith, the Spirit is present. In 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. How can you believe the Gospel if the Spirit isn't present? Paul says elsewhere, those who are of the flesh don't understand spiritual things. So the fact that they had eyes that were open to the reality that the Gospel is good news and the emptiness of the world and what it has to offer, it didn't come from themselves. There's something more. A seal would mark off those who were to be kept safe from the wrath that was to come. Paul's going to get into this in the next chapter, so I won't go into it in depth. But in Christ, we are safe. Sealed by that Spirit, we are safe. The basis, God's sovereign will, the purpose, God's glory, the proof of our salvation. You can put this in your notes. God's Spirit as a seal And one more truth. Look at verse 14. The hope of our salvation. Actually, you can look back at verse 13 for a moment and see that the Holy Spirit is described there as the promised Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit of promise, looking forward. In other words, He is the one that the Word of God said would be sent all along. He's the one that the new covenant promises pointed out in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and throughout are fulfilled in. He assures us of many things, including that we belong to God, but notice something more here. Paul says that he is a guarantee of our inheritance. A guarantee. Another way of translating that might be he is a deposit. What's a deposit? Well, if I'm asking you to do some work for me, I give you a deposit to start with, a portion of the total, until the work is done. And then you get the whole payment. The deposit is a kind of promise of more to come. It's a down payment. I'm giving you some, but there is more where that came from, and there is a fullness that is going to come. Remember, we started by saying you ain't seen nothing yet. Well, here's what Paul is saying. Look at it carefully. The Spirit is not only a seal and evidence that God has saved us. He is also a deposit. He is a taste of something even greater that we will experience one day. He is a deposit that guarantees a full inheritance. Can you imagine what this means? In other words, what we experience in the Holy Spirit today, you ain't seen nothing yet. What we're going to have in the full inheritance can't even be compared to what we have today. And what do we have in the Spirit today? The Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit who bears fruit in our lives and sanctifies us. The one who helps us to recall Scripture as necessary, gives us words to speak when we're in difficult circumstances. The Spirit who allows us to see and understand all truth and allows us to experience deep joy in the presence of God, helps us to know the very presence of God. This experience of the Spirit is only a taste of what is to come. A deposit. A down payment. And because He made the down payment... He is going to give us the full inheritance. The inheritance that we will have includes beholding the triune God face to face. And we have no idea what that really means. But we know this much. We ain't seen nothing yet. But the Spirit in our lives tells us this. 
we will see it. We will. And so Paul can't help himself. He ends this benediction with this refrain to the praise of his glory. Because when we think about the reality of what the Spirit seals us with, and the Spirit is a down payment of God's inheritance given to us, our minds explode trying to comprehend what we will get to experience from God. And all we can do is praise Him and worship Him and adore Him and want to make Him known and want to tell everybody the basis, God's sovereign will, the purpose, God's glory, the proof, the Spirit as sealed, the hope, the Spirit as down payment. And all of this, beloved, freely given, wisely planned, gloriously accomplished for us. For us. As we meditate on these realities, let us with grateful hearts live for this faithful God with all that we are and all that we have to the praise of his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, your truth, this glorious hope that we have. Thank you for your spirit and so much more than we could ever imagine. And so we ask, Lord, keep us safe as you have marked us out. Guide us and use us to declare the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Jesus and for him, amen. This time, I'm going to invite Pastor Tim, who is going to